baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome again to From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and it's time to have one last chat about the Braves and baseball here in the year 2020. We've got a very special show to get into. Before I do, though, want to let you know where you can subscribe to From the Diamond if you haven't already, if you're hearing it for the first time. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. Also, on social media, you can find the show on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y, on Instagram, at From the Diamond, and I'm at Grant McCauley there as well. And every episode of the show and much more is available at FromTheDiamond.com. So as I mentioned, this is the final show of 2020 and a final tribute to a Braves legend. We lost Phil Necro on December the 26th. He's the seventh Baseball Hall of Famer who passed away this year. Known around the game as Nuxie, Phil Necro was the greatest knuckleball pitcher in baseball history. That unique pitch is synonymous with his legacy on the field. To help me celebrate the life and career of Phil Necro, I wanted to bring on a special guest who called Necro both a friend and a teammate throughout their time in Atlanta. Dale Murphy joins me today on From the Diamond. Uh, Dale, it's been a tough year in 2020 across the board in so many different ways, but a really tough year for the world of baseball when it comes to losing a lot of the all-time greats of the game and Phil Necro just a few days ago, the passing of the Braves legend, the Hall of Famer, the man I think synonymous with the knuckleball. I appreciate you making some time to talk about Phil, who I, I know that you knew very well, got to play with for a number of years, and they kind of celebrate the life and the legacy of Phil Necro. Well, thank you, Grant. It's, you know, as you can imagine, I've done a few interviews uh, sure. since he passed, and it's just, uh, you know, it's we're saddened, and and I think Bruce Benedict called me up and said it best. You know, our hearts are heavy mm-hmm. from the loss of a teammate and friend, and a guy that had so much impact on so many people and us young players breaking in back in the day. But you know, um, some good memories pop up, and yeah. that's what life's all about. And before you know it, me and uh, Benny were laughing about something Nuxy said or did or you know, trying to catch a knuckleball or just some. So it, it's, of course, we're saddened and feel for Nancy and the family, but so thankful for those years together, for sure. Absolutely. Let's start, I guess, back at the beginning of your career. I mean, you joined the Braves in the summer of 1974 when you were taken as the number one pick by the Braves in, in the draft, and that turned out to be kind of a transitional year for the club. Hank Aaron was wrapping up his time in Atlanta, but Phil Negro was a constant for two decades, over two decades, in a Braves uniform. What do you remember about meeting Phil Negro? Maybe just the first time or, or that first spring training with him, just those initial interactions with Phil Negro. Well, I signed, as you said, in 74, and I went right to rookie league. Uh, I was a catcher. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my first manager, I spent 
uh, three months with in rookie ball was Hoyt Wilhelm, who was uh, a knuckleballer. Mm -hmm. So he'd throw BP and occasionally, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd float one up there and let us, all of us kids have fun trying to catch a knuckleball. And then in (laughs) 75, I'm trying to hit a knuckleball in 75, being a catcher, I was invited to big league camp, which is typical for a catcher, even though you have no experience, they need bodies Mm -hmm. and they need a lot of catchers. And so I don't really remember too much. What I do remember is just seeing a, a pretty calm presence, a veteran presence in the locker room. Everybody spoke about Phil with a lot of respect. And I just felt, and I was a high school kid, (laughs) you know, I was 19 and I'm in the bullpen and I don't remember. I mean, I know he threw me a few knuckleballs and, you know, I'm sure it was kind of comical me trying to (laughs) catch him, but, but I didn't catch a lot of, I wasn't in games in spring training. Yeah. So I, he, he didn't really throw a lot of, as I recall, and Bruce Bennett, I'd have to ask him, but I don't think while he was warming up, he spent a lot of time with his knuckleball. I think he got loose through his pitches and then, you know, kind of get the feel of his fingers and his hand on the ball. But, you know, he couldn't even predict really exactly where it was going. But so I don't remember getting a lot of exposure to because it's different in the bullpen than yeah. in a game, try to catch his knuckleball. So, um, you know, I was just catching BP and, and BP, he didn't throw any knuckleballs, you know. So all he did during BP was he was great because he wasn't trying to strike anybody out. He he just wanted to get some pitches in, and he just would rapid fire, just throw strikes, and guys loved to take BP off him. And then at the end, you know, he might, again, like Hoyt Wilhelm, you yeah. know, have some fun with you and throw a knuckleball. But, uh, you know, I could tell that there was – he just kind of stood apart uh, in his own way, quiet, you know, uh, didn't say a lot but uh, could feel that veteran, you know, uh, kind of the the weight of his presence there. Just from what I observed, and of course I met Phil as a member of the media, and it seemed like he really, you know, didn't meet a stranger at that time. He was really gracious with fans, with uh, media for interviews and things. Uh, you know, you speak about it a lot as a teammate, just kind of the reverence that was there and the respect for him. But I know that regardless of how gregarious he could be in general, there had to be a pretty fierce competitor in there as well because his job every at that time, maybe every fourth day, was to go out there and, and mow down a lineup yeah. and, and get you out. Absolutely, and you're, you're right. When you get inside his numbers, they're just remarkable. But one of them is, you know, pitching on, in a four-man rotation, being out there. And people talk about, well, the you know, knuckleball. I mean, that's one reason why he did last. The knuckleball doesn't take the strain. You know, he wasn't – it didn't ever look like he was straining out there, but – Still, the wear and tear is what he was able to go through is remarkable. But I think that's what what I think of when you talk about his demeanor. It's the first thing I thought of is because I think our personalities were kind of the same. You know, uh, Gary Matthews, uh, I can't remember when he got traded from the Giants to the Braves, but I loved Gary, and Gary had a great impact on my career. Mm -hmm. But I could tell that, that his personality was different. And occasionally Gary would say, Murph, you got to, you know, <laughs> throw your bat once in a while or something like, you know, just do something. <laughs> and uh, it kind of frustrated him. But, you know, you got to be yourself. But the point is, it's what's inside. And so Nuxie is kind of the guy I look to. I said, like, 
Well, you can be yourself. You don't have, and I don't have anything against demonstrative players out there. I love guys. You can't all be Phil Necros or Dale Murphy's. That right. would be the most boring team ever. And everybody's got a different personality, but yeah. it's what, as far as your competitive desire, your competitive nature and your success will determine what's going on inside of you. And there was nobody really compared to actually with the competitive nature, you know, in modern times or a few years later, we would get someone else, the John Smoltz, who everybody would talk about his competitiveness and everything he did. And, you know, Nuxie was the same. And pretty much that's what guys develop is that inner fire that's mm-hmm. burning, what drives them. Nuxie was hurt. I mean, you can't pitch 23 or 24 years and be 100%. And he wasn't. So I said to myself, well, that must be the way you play. You're going to have a few aches and pains, but yeah. you don't need to take a day off if you're going to, if you could play and help the team, you go out there and give it a shot. And so he just this example without telling me, Hey, you should play hurt occasionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw it. I mean, it's just over the course of those years, that's what you do. You can say what you think, but you don't have to yell it. Um, you know, and you can be a leader in your own way. And I'm not trying to say everybody has the same personality. Sure. That doesn't work either. Right. But Nuxie was that quiet competitor that, you know, he's like Nolan Ryan. He's a knuckleball throwing Nolan Ryan. Okay. And that would be because everybody talks about, you know, competitor, Nolan Ryan threw 100 miles an hour, and he did. And you could feel that. But if Nuxie was a traditional pitcher, with traditional stuff, he'd be Nolan Ryan. I, I really believe that, and that's what he was like. He wanted the ball. He wanted to get out there, and you're going to have a fight on your hand to take him out. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you played a lot with Phil Necro, and you faced Nolan Ryan, of course. Which one of those two guys would you rather face on a regular <laughs> basis, or is it six in one hand, half a dozen in the other? Oh, that is a great question. Pick your poison. Uh-huh. Well, there's so many guys. And when I played, and since we played the Cardinals in the playoffs in 82, George Hendrick told Whitey Herzog, I am not, because I know Dane Orge personally, who uh-huh. filled in for George when George was going to face uh, Nuxie. And he said, Dane, good luck today. You know, George would always walk by Dane Orge, who was a, a great left-handed hitter mm-hmm. and first baseman outfielder. But every time... You know, Nuxy played. And there were a number of guys. I read some other anecdotal stories about guys saying, I can't face this guy because he's going to put me in a slump for a week. Yeah. And so the manager would give him some time. And that was really a true thing. Uh, I faced Charlie Huff, Joe Negro, Candy Adi, mm-hmm. and there's probably another knuckleballer in there. But those guys mixed in enough other pitches to where I never felt like I was facing Phil Negro. Okay. And... I mean, that's a tough question, really sure. is. But the ability to, if you faced Nolan Ryan and, you know, had some success, you could jump into the next game. Yeah. You know, just like, okay, it's a, you got some flow there. But if I had to face Phil, having caught him a few games, um, it's going to sound crazy, but I think I'd rather take my chances with Nolan, just because for me, hitting is, is that flow and more of a feel thing. And, if you face Nuxy four times, which a lot of times he did, he pitched oh, so yeah. many eights, you're going to face him. The next day is a big difference, and that would mess me up. 
Yeah, I could see how it would. And as you mentioned, a few interesting things as we kind of walk through Phil, the competitor, and whether it's playing hurt or just you know going through the aches and pains of a season and making sure you're out there taking your turn in rotation like he was. It's not like today's game where you know you start the 30, 32 times in a regular season. You're looked at to throw maybe 200 innings if you're one of the top pitchers that a team is going to allow to go out there and face a lineup a third, fourth, or more time. Doesn't happen as often, but Phil Necro was routinely throwing 300 plus innings per year, and that wasn't. <laughs> you know, he wasn't the only guy doing that. Nolan Ryan was doing that too. It was a totally different yeah. era for pitchers in general. But I do think it's fascinating. We all know the legacy of Nolan Ryan. I mean, it was pretty much the flip side of the coin with Phil Necro was using a totally unique pitch that was his own thing, whereas Nolan Ryan was known as the Ryan Express. He was going to come at you with that fastball, great curveball. Much more the prototypical power pitcher, and Necro was doing something entirely different. But if you had to choose and choose Nolan Ryan, that says a lot about what Phil Necro could do to you in those three, four, five at-bats in that game. So pretty fascinating stuff. I also went back into baseball reference so I could take a look and get an idea of how often you got to catch Phil Necro early in your career and deal with that famous knuckleball. It had you listed at 23 games behind the plate for him, which is actually one more than Bob Euchre, who famously said the best way to catch Phil Negro's knuckleball is to wait till it stops rolling and go pick it up. Uh, so what was your experience like catching for Phil Negro <laughs> and that the most unique pitch in baseball? Well, it was scary because, uh, first of all, as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, you know, playing in the big leagues, I mean, that's the best way to put it because 23 games, I probably got a pretty good understanding, but really you got to get into the Bruce Benedict uh, numbers before you got a really, I mean, and Bruce was always the best that, and actually always said he was the best he'd ever have. He wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame without Benny. And so as I recall, I think I got a little bit better, but there was never a comfort. Uh, Definitely the same thing as hitting. I'd rather catch somebody else because so you're sitting there, as soon as you get two strikes, you're worried about dropping the third strike or it getting completely yeah. by you. You know, a guy gets on first, you're immediately worried about him getting to second. Uh, what if he steals? Catching a knuckleball? Okay, so when you're catching and the guy's, you know, like Davey Lopes, who's stealing 80 bases a year, yeah. is on first, and Nuxie can't, you know, Nuxie developed a great move because here's, the, here's what, if I was playing against Phil... I'd run every guy out there because as you're coming out to throw a guy out at second on a fastball or a, let's just say a, a pitch out, you just kind of flow into the ball yeah, and you flow into the ball and throw it to second. Well, he's throwing a knuckleball. Well, you come out, get your momentum and it dips one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to try to catch the ball and throw the guy out at second. So you're worried about stolen bases, drop third strikes, pass balls, and then you get a guy on third base with a one or two run lead, or you're down one or two runs. And the point of trying to catch the ball is you have to relax. Mm-hmm. And the paradox, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But you can't, it's so hard to relax because of the pressure of the moment. You tend to tense up. Right. I think Benny was able to really relax and go with, but you are tense. And so, your job becomes to keep it in front of you. That is what you're trying to do. So, no, it was never something where I ever felt in a flow with Nuxie. I mean, only 23 games and, and being a kid. So, 
it's a real paradox. You got to relax, but you got so many things you're thinking about. Uh, it's mind boggling. Yeah, because not only do you not know where it's going to go, but he also does not know exactly where it's going to go. Right, doesn't know exactly. I think sometimes he knew. He knew he had control. It's going to go mm-hmm. in. The, I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> he knew it was going to go in the strike zone. Yeah, but where? <laughs> but exactly where? And it's it's as you're trying to throw someone out, for instance. It may move just a few inches, but you don't know which way. So it's really, really a battle. And that gets into another discussion, which maybe we can get into is why isn't there, you know, more thrown? Well, that's, that's kind of the inside problem of having a knuckleball pitcher. Yeah. But it's interesting, too, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, the guys I faced, there were quite a few. So it wasn't that unusual. But it was scary. I mean, and my favorite memory uh, that I've had fun sharing this week and that Phil and I talked about a lot is my very first call up in September of 76. I, I don't even know which game it, it was probably my third game I've ever caught. Nuxy. we're in riverfront stadium and he uh-huh. takes a no hitter into the ninth and we get one out in the ninth and we're two outs away from throwing a no hitter. And I think we had a three run lead. So Oh man, that that was uh, that was an incredible experience. And he always said, "Murph, I wanted that no hitter for you so bad. Being a rookie catcher, that would have been a great thing." And you know, that's the kind of guy he was. He was pulling for me, yeah, as well as uh, him. And uh, he always said, ah, "That would have been a great thing for you, huh?" And so, you know, I had a moth fly into my mask in Dodger Stadium when the ball was halfway there. The guy hit it or fouled it off. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I, that was the, the funniest thing. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. There's a moth <laughs> in my mask. And uh, I had one, I had a number, you know, the, the ones that come to mind, I had a ball hit me in the bare hand because we used to catch a lot more two-handed. Mm-hmm. And even when actually you got your other hand up there trying to keep it in front of you, and it moved so much, it hit me in the bare hand. I was trying to catch it in my glove. It broke so much, hit me in my bare hand. I actually tore cartilage. I just remembered this the other day, trying to catch one of his knuckleballs to my right. I I went out. This was seventy nine. I was catching and first base, and I I tore my left knee trying to scoot to the right. Really? Um, yeah. In seventy nine, I missed about three months. Back then, cartilages were. It took a little more time than sure. nowadays. In fact, they he tried the orthoscope for the first time ever, Dr. Wells. He goes, I'm going to try this new thing. And when I woke up, he said, hey, that new thing didn't work. <laughs> so, And so I I mean, I hurt my knee trying to shift and stop a ball that was just so far out there. And it, it was something I never felt comfortable. And eventually, obviously, I moved to, to uh, the outfield. But uh, it was, I had four or five pass balls in Houston one night. I Ooh. mean, Nexi <laughs> was very patient, you know. Yeah. He was very patient. He understood, and that's why he appreciated Bruce Benedict so much, because he just did a, such a great job. Yeah, I, I can imagine that having some continuity and working on that partnership there for any battery, that's a huge part of it, is being able to trust one another. But with such an unpredictable pitch, that has to be a little bit more difficult, because like you said, you're never really able to relax in any way. You're always kind of on edge. I, I went and looked, um, uh, catchers for Phil Necro. Bruce Benedict, easily top of the list, 148 times that he caught Nuxie. Biff Pocorobo was second with 98, and then Joe Torre 
So those are the top three. Funny enough, Joe Torre was behind the plate for Phil Necro's first start uh, way back with the Milwaukee Braves. He only started one time in Milwaukee, but of course, as you well know, Joe Torre went on to be Phil Necro's not only teammate, but also manager and your manager as well in 1982. So Nuxie had quite a career and it spanned uh, four different decades. And that knuckleball was the pitch that it became synonymous with Phil Necro or vice versa. And a lot of times I think that, and as we talked about with Nolan Ryan, like you think of this staff ace of a club or an ace in baseball, and maybe it is a Nolan Ryan or Sandy Koufax or even a Greg Maddox that pops to mind and Clayton Kershaw, Jacob deGrom, guys like that today. But when it's a knuckleballer with such an unpredictable and, and almost temperamental kind of pitch as his primary weapon, I would imagine a manager like a Joe Torre would just kind of have to hang in there in a different way because it's an unorthodox style of pitcher and, it does seem like for Phil, he was on his game way more times than he was not. But what was it like on days that Nuxie pitched just in general? You talked about catching him, but also playing behind him. I mean, uh, things could either go really, really well or, or could go south. And with a knuckleball, I guess you have to have a different kind of patience to see how the game's going to play out. Exactly. What I would have done, and what a manager, Joe, probably did it too, but uh, you got to look at his past history. Yeah okay, he's going to give me 250 innings this year or 300. <laughs> you know, let's just take the average. Yeah. Uh, man, it'd be, it'd be fascinating to see what he averaged over, over his career. Uh, but you go, okay, well, let's just say it's 300, which he did for a few years. Okay, he's going to give me 300 uh, innings and he's going to win 12 games. Okay, let's not panic when, when, when things go south. And some days that thing isn't going to move. And he was vulnerable when it didn't move because he didn't, you know, throw as hard. So, so that's what you got to do is you, that's probably, again, getting back to why they, they don't have him now. There's no history. You know, it's a one-off thing. Back then there were a few more guys and that threw it. So you could say to yourself, Hmm, okay, he's going to give me 300 innings and at least 12 to 15 victories. I'm going to take a few days where it, it, it doesn't look very pretty. Sure. And, and that's just all you had to, because it was unpredictable. But if you look at his history, it's going to work out over the course of the season, so stick with it. Yeah, and that's sure. what you have to do. And, but playing behind him was great. Uh, you know, playing behind him was a lot better than playing in front of him <laughs> <laughs> as a catcher. Sure. Uh, he was quick, working. You know, there was just nothing bad about playing behind Nuxie. If you ask me about playing behind Gaylord Perry, I'd say, yeah, every once in a while I'd get a ball in the outfield that I couldn't grip I and throw why. to second base. I wonder <laughs> because, why. Oh, I got a good story there for another podcast. All right. Um, but playing behind Nuxie, there was just no downside. Plus, it, you know, he threw a two-hour game once. Right. Or twice. I don't know. I mean, I remember, I think we had one, two, I'd have to Google it, and I don't even remember when it was. It was a hot Sunday afternoon, and, I think it was an hour and 57 minutes. So you're like, no, put Nuxie out there every day. Love to play behind him. Yeah, no, you'll take that. So I went back and looked. You were wondering what the average was for Phil Necro innings-wise. 1967 was when he became a starting pitcher, so the second year in Atlanta. At that time, he was going on 28 years old as well to become a starting mm -hmm. pitcher. Over the next 20 years, so until 1986, he won 305 games and threw over 5,000 innings. So that's an average of 256 innings per year for Phil Necro for 20 years. It was an incredible 
a display of durability, the likes of which, I mean, we're not going to see that regardless of how no. hard you throw or what pitch you choose to make a living with in the case of Phil Necro and the knuckleball. Yeah, you, you know, people say, oh, it doesn't take as much strain, the knuckleball. So so he could average 250 innings. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, that, no, that it takes wear and tear. Uh, you have to stay healthy. Remember, he hit. Yep. He hit, he ran the bases, he fielded his position, he played in a hot, humid place, Atlanta. Yep. Um, you know, he took pride in his hitting. He just didn't want to go up there making out. So the durability is, it, it is, it's unrivaled. I mean, there's Nolan Ryan and there's a few others, but it's a different era. And he was a different person. He was just a, it, regardless, you got to have some kind of something inside you to get you out there every day. I don't care if you are throwing a knuckleball because sure. you're still going to throw seven or eight innings. I mean, it, it didn't really matter all mm-hmm. that stuff. But uh, you get inside his numbers, and it is unreal. So that that's fascinating. He, he averaged that many over that many years. I mean, it's just – so as a manager, I think that's what you got to yeah. do. And I think the last one, I'm sure there's somebody I'm missing, but Wakefield, I mean, that's the same thing. He gave you a lot of innings, and you've got to look at that. He's going, to, okay, 162 games, I'm going to need some innings. And this guy is going to give me more than anybody else? Yeah. Well, I'll take that. No, you most certainly will. And he was the ace of the Braves staff for quite some time. Even if he wasn't making the opening day start year in and year out, Phil Necro was the constant for the Braves by the time they moved to Atlanta and all the way up until the time that – it really, things started to turn around a little bit in the early 80s after some lean years in the late 70s. I know you experienced those as a young player coming yeah. into your own. The team it, it, overall was coming into its own. You had Bobby Cox for a number of years, and we've discussed that in the past, but Joe Torre was tabbed to become the new manager of the Braves in 1982, and that was a pretty special year. The incredible winning streak that started the season, then winning the NL West and going to the postseason for the first time since 1969 for the Braves. And Phil, he was a staff ace that year, went 17-4 and four at the age of 43, which is incredible. Uh, how much confidence did it bring you by having a longtime veteran on a team that was having its first real taste of success in quite some time? Yeah, he had a great year that year. And, uh, you know, he's just kind of the guy that everybody was, like, rallying behind. He was the constant presence he took the ball in the famous uh, Pasquale Perez game where yeah. he, he missed a start. Everybody says he was lost. We don't really know what happened. <laughs> Do we know? The bottom, <laughs> the bottom line is 15 minutes before the game, Pasquale was not there. And actually, I talked to him about a month ago. I go, refresh me on some of those details on that. He goes, he goes, yeah, I was in the bathroom. He said, and Joe came back and goes, Nuxie, can you go tonight? <laughs> Can you throw? <laughs> and next he goes, yeah, just give me a couple minutes. I'll get out there. And then he won the game for us. But that was just all around fun year. And he was the only constant, really, because offensively we went into some terrible slumps. We only played three games over 500 after that initial winning streak. We we weren't built for long-term success. And we after the first two weeks, we just played barely over 500. But you won 17 of those games and, and just maintain a positive influence throughout that time and you know he uh he was just there and he hits a home run his last start in san diego uh he shuts out the padres and then of course Braves fans will remember we had a one nothing lead in in that first game and got rained out but nuts is pitching. Right. george hendrick's not playing i mean you know he's 17 and four with a one run lead in the fifth 
you're kind of thinking this is more like a three or four run lead, mm-hmm. but it wasn't to be. So it would have been interesting to see that because he was, he was our constant. We were not a consistent team. We had some other pitchers, Pasquale, you know, the other guys that did pretty good. I don't remember numbers, but Rick Camp had a good year. Bob Locke had a good year. But next eve, you know, won 17 games. And yeah. it was, you know, it was a different story when he was out there. Mm-hmm. A little more comfort. Most certainly. And, yeah, and for those who might be listening and wondering about that game one and the rain and all of that, that was, uh, what, the LCS uh, that year against the Cardinals? Yeah, that, right? that, that was the only thing we had. Yeah, it was a five-game series with them to go to the World Series, yeah. and we got swept. And it would have been nice to see if we could steal one in St. Louis because, man, that was older before we knew it. Yeah, it would have been an incredible. And at that time, it was not the seven-game format that the LCS is now. So it's things yeah, have obviously games. changed in baseball, yeah. as we've noticed in the playoffs, uh, seemingly on an annual basis these days. But uh, so as you look at what Phil Necro did for the Atlanta Braves for the better part of uh, two decades, a little more than two decades, it had to be pretty bittersweet after 1983 when Phil left Atlanta he went on to join the New York Yankees. How did you feel about seeing him move on, I guess, at that time and the decision that went into it? You guys were coming off a pretty good 1983. You mentioned that you know, things were kind of over before you knew it as far as contending was concerned. But seeing Phil Necro leave, that had to be quite a shift for the club overall. Well, it changed my perspective. I mean, you know, I had had a few years in the league, so I knew yeah. it was a business and all that kind of stuff. But it really it changed my perception. First of all, I was just, you know, I didn't understand it. Um, I just was like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was not a pretty experience back then, you know, in the papers and why. And, and I think I read an article about Joe talking about how uncomfortable it was and it was not a good thing. And he, he saw Nuxie in an old-timers game and they talked it out. I guess there were some accusations that, Phil wanted to manage, which was true, and Joe felt threatened. But Joe reassured him, as I understand, when they reconnected that, hey, that wasn't why, you know, we were going young. Mm -hmm. We had Ken Daly and somebody else, I can't remember. But we just wanted to go young, more traditional throwers, et cetera. But it was ugly, you know, the bottom line. It was not pretty. So my point is it changed my perception, and I've always said, and it's true, that when it came time for me to talk to the Braves about moving on, I reflected back on Phil's situation. I said, look, this is going to happen. They're either going to release me, which was a, the weird part about Phil is he got released, I think, yeah. is what I remember, just flat released. And so when it came time for me at the end of my career with Atlanta, I just remembered that. So it, it was always embedded in my mind. And I was like, this is going to happen. You know, five guys in the history of the game or whatever it was at that point stay with the same team. It's not going to happen. So I'm going to have a little bit more control over it when it happens. And it still wasn't that much fun. Sure. <laughs> it's not that fun to leave an organization. Yeah, we Nuxie talked about loved, that. Yeah, yeah. And so that was – it was a really weird time. And we were having success and – I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, uh, Grant. It just was a weird time. You know, under Joe, we finished first, second, and second. And then he fired Ted fired Joe. I don't know. Right. <laughs> you, you know, what's going on there? I heard, you know, and I've never really found out, but that, that uh, they wanted to fire uh, Bob Gibson. 
and uh, Joe said, well, you fire him, and I'm leaving. Yeah, because Gibby was his you know, pitching coach happened. at the time, right? Yeah, and they were real tight. Oh, and yeah. So my point is with Nuxy and just the whole thing, it was weird because we were kind of on a roll, it felt like, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it, it kind of uh, collapsed. It was a weird time, but Nuxy was was such a rock and, and such a – influence on us younger players that it was really tough to watch at that time i know before joe torrey had come in bobby cox famously was let go by ted but bobby showed up at the press conference for being let go and ted essentially said well i'm looking for someone just like the guy sitting up here with me to be the new manager (laughs) of the atlanta Braves." so those decisions i mean who in the world knows i mean ted was nothing if not impulsive Uh, had a lot of a lot of uh, maverick in him that certainly served him well throughout all of the endeavors he had throughout his career but you know patience is a virtue of course in the game of baseball as you know it's a they say it it's a marathon and not a sprint and it's the same thing when you're building a winning club if you you know have a three four five year plan whatever it is and you blow it up every 18 months or so it's kind of hard to have that plan and see it through to fruition but the changing of the guard at that time certainly we can call it that with phil necro leaving was a a difficult time, I'm sure, as a teammate and a member of that club. And he went on to sign yeah. with the New York Yankees. And you are right. He did get released. I mean, there was no, hey, he got traded to such and such team. Uh, Eddie Matthews ended up getting traded. Hank Aaron had been traded. But for Phil Necro, he was just released by the Braves in 1983, right after the season, as a matter of fact. But he signed with the New York Yankees, spent a couple of years there, and he won his 300th game. For the Yankees on the final day of the 1985 season. So I went back and looked, and the Braves finished on the West Coast in San Francisco. Were you able to watch any part of that, and did you get a chance to congratulate Nuxy on reaching the 300-win mark? Eventually, but I don't recall of us sitting around the TV. You know, I really don't. Mm-hmm. I, I would hope that we did, <laughs> or <laughs> we didn't have phones to watch it on. Well, I of course, that. right. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I don't remember. I'm sure, you know, uh, I congratulated him somewhere along the line. But, uh, you know, I don't recall. I remember seeing it, the highlights, and feeling great for him. But it was, uh, you know, he's in a Yankee uniform. It was weird. It's just weird. It's just weird. I think Glav, didn't Glavin, did he win his 300 in a As Met? As a New York uniform? Met, yeah. As a New York Met. Maddox so, went back to the Cubs and won his 300 there as well. Yeah. But... I think you brought up a good point earlier about some of the unknowns of what Ted was doing. Ted was great to play for, but impulsive and, like you said, served him well in some things. But we always did better, and I believe baseball do better. I don't mind an owner like Ted or an owner like Mark Cuban. I wish Mark Cuban owned a baseball team. But there is an obvious connection between the general manager and the manager running the show without too much impulsive input in the game of baseball from the owner. And I think you bring up some good points there that I don't really know the answer to, but I think probably influenced a few decisions back then. And we may never know the answer to those, of course, but it it was quite a time. And unfortunately for Phil, one of the chapters of his Braves career was leaving, moving on, whether he wanted to or not, and whether you know teammates, fans alike wanted him to move on. That was just kind of part of his story, but – he went on to write a few more chapters, of course, going to the Yankees, becoming a 300-game winner. He ended up playing with the Cleveland Indians after that. He was a Toronto Blue Jay ever so briefly in 1987. And that brings me to kind of the uh, final act for Phil Negro, the curtain call, as it were. And a really memorable moment for me, I know as a young Braves fan, was Phil returning 
for one last start in a Braves uniform, and it happened on September 27th of 1987. He'd been off for a month after getting released by Toronto, but there he was back at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium on that mound one last time with a very warm welcome from Braves fans that day. Uh, you were, of course, on the Braves in 1987 and, and on that team and as a longtime teammate of Phil Necro. Walk me through that day a little bit. What was it like to have Phil back in the fold one more time? Well, it was electric, and, you know, we were struggling. I don't remember very much except that it was like – Tough year for sure. Yeah. It was like 82 and 83. You know, all of a sudden there was electricity in the crowd, and Nuxy does that. I think it's just remarkable – after getting released, that he wants to finish as a Brave. His his love and loyalty to the Braves was just undying. It's like you couldn't get it out of him. If you, if, I saw a picture on Twitter the other day. They said this picture is from when they retired his number. He had an off day with the Yankees. He came back and he put on his uniform. He put on his Braves uniform wow. to come out. And that's what the caption whoever posted it said, this is from the day Ted retired his number. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, he had an off day with the Yankees. He came back and put on his uniform. I mean, just the fact that he, he just loved the Braves. That's all there was to it. He just, it was unwavering and, and the electricity. I remember Bruce Benedict. I just saw a quote of his. He was like, I was so nervous because, you know, I hadn't caught him in a while and all of a sudden he's going to come back and, you know, I don't want to, you know, have five pass balls. And, but it was <laughs> right. just a blast. It was just a blast, electricity, and a chance to tell Nuxie thank you. Yeah, and the game didn't go the way that he wanted to. I mean, he sat around for a month. The Giants kind of had his number that day, but it was much less about what the final score was and much more about just that opportunity for maybe a little bit of closure that he was looking forward to for Braves fans. I think you just laid it out wonderfully as well for the energy that it brought back and the feeling that it brought back to his teammates and it had to be pretty unique to experience that day in a time when those kind of days at the ballpark for the Braves were few and far between in that particular period of Braves Absolutely. history. But having Phil Necro back in the fold had to be a pretty good feeling. I've posted a video a few times. I think you've seen it of that day of the television broadcast. And it's, yeah. it's amazing to hear Skip Carey, Pete Van Weeren, Ernie Johnson, all just being the narrators of that as well. But Chuck Tanner coming out to take the ball from him and Necro staying out, the tribute video, the long-standing ovation. And then I think as he goes into the dugout, one of the first people that you can see is a young 20-something-year-old left-hander named Tom Glavin congratulating Phil as he oh, walked out awesome. from that. And that was kind of a, a generational, because I don't think a lot of people would suspect, hey, do you know Phil Necro and Tom Glavin were teammates? Well, at least for one day, they certainly were. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the video is is fun, and it just brings back great memories. And I, I think, Ted, everybody kind of said, hey, things didn't go too smoothly in 84. Let's bring him back and try to make up for it. You know, I think there was a little bit of that there, which thankfully was there because that could have gone south too. They could have yeah. said, no, you know, we, just, we can't do that, Phil. But someone said this would probably be a good idea after the way he was let go. Let's do it. Yeah. So. Uh, it was. It was just. Uh, it's a cliche, but it was electric. That it was that atmosphere that you have with a winning team and a playoff team. It's. It was fun to experience that again for a day, and especially with Phil. Yeah, I have to wonder a little bit too. Nineteen eighty-seven. Bobby Cox was a general manager, so he could have been influential and in, in maybe bringing Phil back oh, yeah. for that curtain call. And 
clearly he had ties to the Braves organization, but then left, went to Toronto for a little while, had come back and had his GM hat on at that time. So maybe Bobby was a, a big player behind the scenes. I forgot for that. that. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I forgot Bobby was GM. I, you know, the timelines and everybody, but I, I wouldn't doubt it because that's the way Bobby is too. Absolutely. You know, I'm not saying Bobby doesn't release guys and trade guys if you have to, but the point is Bobby is loyal to a fault. And I don't think there's any question, you know, he wanted to do this for Maxie and I'm glad it worked out because it'd be interesting. What if we, what if we had a, a five game lead or something, you know, <laughs> it'd be like, Maxie, we can't, we can't do that, but we'll you can come out and coach first or something because they might've said, Hey, we, you know, but maybe that was the reason why we were struggling so much was for the chance for the Atlanta Brave organization to make right, you know? Yeah, and I think it's wonderful that they were able to make that right as well. And uh, so Phil Negro's major league career came to a close on that September day in 1987. He didn't, of course, he stayed around the game. He did end up managing and uh, staying around, doing a lot of stuff. He was involved with the Braves organization, eventually inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1998. It took him uh, a few tries to get in there, but eventually the Hall got it right, as they do ever so often. But uh, be that as it may, you've spent the better part of – all the time since and your return to Atlanta when your playing career ended and attending alumni events and Braves Hall of Fame gatherings and different things with Phil Necro over the years. How much fun has that been when you had that chance? You mentioned a little bit earlier, just reconnecting with Phil Necro and kind of catching up on those old days and swapping stories and that kind of thing. No, there's nothing like it. I appreciate the Braves, you know, really going the extra mile with their alumni. It's, it's not an easy thing. It takes time. It takes money. Greg McMichael's doing a great job. And I think in 2020, that's what a lot of us old timers miss so much. Yeah. But seeing Nuxie was, again, just give him a hug. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, Grant. You know, the last few times I remember giving him a hug, you know, he, 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 he'd say, I love you, which is not a thing, ball players or it's, it's just, you know, love you, Murph. Yeah. And, it just meant so much to me. I'd see him in Cooperstown, you know, if I'd go up there on induction weekend and I'd look him up and, you know, he'd give me a hug. He, and then he'd say, he'd, he'd give me a hug. He goes, Murph, we're going to get you in here. We're going to get you in here. I'll do whatever I can. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just one of those guys, Grant, that, that everybody loves, everybody knows, but he was so sincere. You know, I go, I, I, I mean, I remember now that I, I go to induction weekend. You know why I'm there, Grant? I'm mm-hmm. signing autographs, right? you know, for money. And I don't think Nuxie ever signed in Cooperstown. He's done other signings. Sure. But I just thought that was an interesting thing. It just was like kind of crossed the line of, of what the Hall of Fame meant to him. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I, I heard, and I, I never saw him sign there for money. He was always involved in Hall of Fame stuff. This guy was always involved in everything. Mm-hmm. Loved helping kids and just did a lot of great charity work. But yeah, this will it'll be sad, definitely, to do, look at the future of our alumni gatherings and and not have Nuxie there. It's going to be a a sad day when we get back together. It certainly will be, but a legacy that he leaves behind both on the field, off the field, with teammates and fans alike, and uh, an incredible one-of-a-kind pitcher. It really was truly what he is. He's synonymous with a pitch. I don't know that any other pitcher really can 
lay that claim of that pitch really being Good point. the legacy that, that he carries. But when you think about the knuckleball, there are so few of them now. I think R.A. Dickey was the last man to have sustained success as a knuckleballer in the big leagues, and he owed a lot of that and had a very heartfelt message in the passing of Phil Necro yes. for how positively Phil impacted his career to help him yes. master that pitch that is so difficult. Uh, but yeah, yeah I saw that. That's kind of the legacy of Phil Necro, though, is uh, as that great teammate, and he was a great mentor for some pitchers, R.A. Dickey chief among them, who were trying to not just reinvent themselves, but trying to just reach some modicum of success in the game, and that is no easy thing, as you know better than I do. Absolutely. He was always wanting to help and would listen, and he really wanted. He just wanted to help. I know it frustrated him that more organizations were calling him to help guys with knuckleballs and mm-hmm. tried to develop them because he would go to any organization. I, and I know he did. They'd say, Hey, come down to spring training and work with the kid. And Oh, he ate that up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was it. So like Bruce Benedict said, our, our hearts are heavy, but what great memories and, and good memories we have of being a teammate of Phil Negros. Absolutely. Well, Murph, I really appreciate you taking all the time to share some of those memories and stories and, just take a look back at one of baseball's truly one-of-a-kind, not just pitchers, but players in general, and a guy who leaves behind an incredible legacy of not just success on the field, but impacting lives in and around the game, off the field, and pretty much it looked like making friends wherever he went. So we will definitely miss Phil Necro, but I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to remember a friend, a teammate, and a legend in the game and for the Braves organization as well. Thank you so much, Dale. Well, thanks for letting me take the time. It's just an honor to be able to share some thoughts and memories about Phil, and we'll just miss him so much. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much to Dale Murphy for making the time to join the show today. Make sure you're keeping up with everything that Murph has going on at dalemurphy.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at dalemurphy3. That brings us to the end of the show. As always, I appreciate you making From the Diamond part of your baseball podcast regimen. Thank you for another great year of talking Braves and Major League Baseball. I appreciate all my guests and co-hosts throughout the year, Bill Rowland, Gabe Burns, and all of the folks that jumped on the show to talk baseball. It's just something I love to do and something I'm looking forward very much to doing again in 2021. You can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. Tell a friend if you like what you're hearing as we want to grow the show and continue to bring you this great baseball talk again as we turn that calendar to the year 2021 and say goodbye to a year that's been challenging in so many different ways. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for your support. That'll do it for this episode of From the Diamond. Until next time, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.